Welcome to the Celtics Pride Podcast on Celtics Blog. I'm Michael Minkoff, and with me, as always, Josh Motenko. How's it going, Josh? It's going well, Mike. How's it going? Doing all right, doing all right. We're recording on a Monday evening here uh, after the Celtics had the early day game uh, for Martin Luther King Jr. Day. They handily uh, took care of the oh-so-sad New Orleans Pelicans. Um, We've got uh, a nice little program here today, Josh. We're going to be starting by taking a look at the Celtics. Are are they streaking? Are are, are, should we believe in them? We're, we're gonna we're gonna look into that question a little bit. Then there have been some recent trade rumors that we're gonna that we're gonna poke around and 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 discuss and and see how we feel about. And then oh, yeah. uh, you know that trade deadline is is looming. It's February tenth. It's not so far away. So we're gonna take a look at the schedule between now and then as we as we think about what the Celtics should be doing and, and need to be doing. We've obviously been talking recently about some trade ideas. Uh, a couple of times in the last couple of months, and and I expect a couple times, a couple more times between now and next month. So, so let's let's take a quick look, uh, Josh, at, at the Celtics' recent performance. Um, they have won seven of their last ten. That that dates back to that uh, impressive win they had against Phoenix on New Year's Eve, and goes through this last game against the Pelicans, where the, where they won by twelve at home. They they've been on a recent homestand. Uh, they've won five of their last six, three of their last four. Over that period, we've we've climbed our way back over 500 for the first time since December 7th. Positioned ourselves. Yeah, yeah I know. Woo, over 500. Something to celebrate these days with the Celtics. Um, uh, we're a, a resounding 10th in the East, uh, which puts us three games out of sixth, five and a half games out of first, the Bulls in, in first place. And then uh, we're a half game ahead of the Knicks, who are in 11th. So we're oh so uncomfortably jostled in at the bottom of the play-in right now. Yeah. So all of that's to say, Josh, clearly we've been winning more than we had been uh, in December. Do you feel that this team has turned a corner? And, and if so, what exactly is the corner that they've turned? Um, I, I'm actually curious what your answer would be to your own question before I answer, if you'd indulge me. I, I would be happy to indulge you if only I knew how to answer the question. Uh, oh, I, I think no. I think it's I think it's a yes and no, and and that you know that's why the question has the second part of what exactly is the corner they've turned. I think you know, Josh. I'll give you the hat tip here from from what you mentioned in our episode last week, where you talked about the silver lining of losing. What I do feel like I'm seeing is a little bit of of truly internalized growth from Tatum and Brown, understanding that the buck really stops with them and that they have to be the guy. And kind of with a level of maturity that I don't think they've shown, they've I don't think they've just quite understood it fully as much as they seem to be in this more recent yeah. stretch. So I would say, yes, they've turned a corner in that I am seeing what I believe to be truly encouraging signs about the way we're playing of late that I believe indicate this team is focused on the right stuff from the GM, the front office, all the way down to the key players and the rest of the roster. And they're growing in the right way. But if you're saying, like, has this team turned a corner and 
we should, you know, re-enter them into the championship contender conversation? Absolutely not. Like that's that would be absurd wow. to me at this point to 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 come to that conclusion. Yeah, I, I think I'm a no and no to that question. <laughs> I think it's a smoke screen. Okay. Uh, I think we we should not believe what we are seeing. I like the stats. You know, seven of seven and three in the last ten, five of the last six. Like those are great stats. But we're a 500 team right now. We're back to 500 again, pretty much. You know, one game above. If you take the last two years combined. Like since since we traded our our top ball mover and or in, uh, Gordon Hayward since he left, um, we're a 500 team overall. We're 59 and 58. So I think it's a smokescreen to me. What is going to really tell if we've turned a corner and are streaking is if we actually go on a winning streak that's more than five games, because we haven't we we had one of those in the last two years combined, and then the year before that we had a, a couple win streaks of like 11 games and, and more you know, legitimate streaks that good teams go on. So to me, that's the key. I want to see this little run that we're, that we look like we're going on right now, turn into an actual win streak of six games. That would be the top of, of our last two years combined. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I can't disagree with that. I'm, I'm not, I'm not putting a lot of stock in anything the Celtics do. I agree until, until they show they can kind of sustain it at a, at a consistent level for more than two or maybe three games at a time. You know, we're going to be talking about the upcoming schedule a little bit later in more detail, but suffice it to say, the upcoming schedule is sufficiently hospitable that if there is something real here, this is a, a there's a chance for the Celtics to show that and to demonstrate yeah. it because because they're not we're not you know the juggernaut of our schedule was in December, so we we have broadly over the remaining the remainder of the year the sixth easiest schedule according to tankathon's strength of schedule site, so we'll have opportunity both over the longer haul and in the nearer term you know and I agree josh like there that there are some issues that remain with the team the ball movement is definitely not what I think either Brad Stevens or Ime Odoka would would ideally have. I think there's a just a reality with Tatum and Brown that like they're not the type of players that are going to be part of one of those, you know, always swinging the ball side to side like rapid yeah. fire like the Warriors, right? Like you're just, they're not going to be it. you can't build an offense around them like that cuz they do need a little bit more time to scan the floor and per- just they don't seem to have that processing speed to make those decisions that quickly. Certainly not at this point in their maturity. And I don't know if they ever will. And I don't know. I don't know that that's inherently a problem. They just have to get yeah. better and better at always making the right basketball play and, and maximizing kind of the efficiency of their decisions. But, you know, like the Clippers aren't always moving the ball like that because Paul George and Kawhi Leonard don't always move the ball like that. But it's okay because they're mature enough in their games as offensive players where when that team is clicking, they can still be absolutely dominating right. and when everyone's healthy, right? So I I do feel like against Chicago, against the Pelicans, uh, certainly not against Philly because that game was, was gross, but also against Indy, like uh, I, I think Tatum has been playing extremely well in this in this recent stretch which he tends to have come on really strong towards the end of seasons and he he seems to start slow in the first month or two of the season so yep. um that's encouraging 
that he seems to really be kind of coming on and getting to that level that that really is borderline, if not actual all NBA level for him that he, he always seems to kind of flirt with and, and maybe tease Celtics fan, fans with. Um, and I would also say about Tatum, like he definitely still gripes about calls, but to me, the way those gripes affect his ability to kind of stay in the game, the, you know, the, the amount of attention he's directing at the ref uh, seems to have diminished greatly. Like he seems a little frustrated, but he's definitely seems yeah. to me to be hanging his head less and getting back in the play much more quickly than he had in years past. So like, you know, I think, I think Jalen is, he obviously had that kind of abhorrent game a few weeks back where, what was he? he was like 13 for 36 or something when Tatum was out and he had no assists and everyone got on him. But I yeah. think since then he's clearly been making a much more concerted effort to move the ball. He's had outrageously impressive offensive stats yeah. in the, in the month of January. Uh, I think in the Pelicans broadcast, I said he was like one of three players in the NBA uh, averaging more than 27 points, more than eight rebounds. And uh, also with like shooting 50% uh, from the field and 40, more than 40% from three. So, yeah, you know, I like, these are the things I'm talking about when I, I feel like, there are there are little seed there are seedlings here that I'm I'm feeling encouraged by, but I agree with you, Josh, that that they need to put a streak together before I would buy any real stock in this in this Celtics team. Um, yeah, the is there? Streak- I mean, is there anything you're seeing that you're feeling good about? That like, are there are there little changes that you might lend a little more credence to in the near term? I mean, I think the ones that you bring up are are all kind of individual signs of life i think for both tatum and brown i think you you've seen some stuff out of peyton pritchard recently you've seen some stuff out of rob williams he's been balling so i think on an individual level yeah we're seeing that but we're not seeing it in terms of it's resulting in wins and so that's what the streak would show is that like we're actually going to close out a few games in a row and and that it's going to impact winning all this individual play that's been that's been really good i mean tatum and brown have been playing really well I think that when they go to the basket, the shots they're getting, the shots they're making, they're all tough shots. It's off of multiple moves. It's it's like there, there's not a whole lot of easy baskets. And so, you know, you mentioned watching the Warriors. Like all it takes is to watch a few other teams around the NBA and the ball movement issues of the Celtics become kind of glaring. Um, and even, even Schroeder too, like he's been balling too, but – you know, all of his moves, they're all just really tough, difficult shots. We're not getting a whole lot of easy baskets that are just off of pure effort and energy and teamwork. And those are really what I think make the game come easier to to a team as a whole and that, that allows you to put some strings and wings, wins together. Um, even like when you see Schroeder drive and kick, which sometimes is surprising to some fans, but he has that in his game. But for Tatum, Brown, and Schroeder, when they drive and kick, it's all off of like an in-and-out crossover spin move, and then they pivot a couple times and finally throw like a really difficult pass out. Even their drive and kicks are off of combo moves and are like more difficult than they need to be. Um, yeah, my so favorite. Like, yeah, I think you. Yeah, go ahead. So, sorry, my well, this isn't a drive and kick, but my favorite thing that I saw Schroeder doing, and and I use favorite loosely, but. Uh, doing in the game against the Pelicans is he would direct like I, I saw Tatum had kind of a mismatch 
on, I don't know, it was maybe, what was that guy's name? Matthews, I think it was. Um, and, and so he got Tatum to like step up in the high post on the, on the strong side with him. Tatum, t- uh, Schroeder was closer to the corner, but he just directed Tatum to be there. So he could do that. Like, fake oh, yeah. like he's going to go towards the middle and like reverse spin towards the baseline. He's just setting guys up not to like do team ball, but just so he can do his own ISO moves. And and I think like that yeah, underlined that part of your point where it's like these guys are always trying to do something kind of complicated and fancy to like open things up instead of actually just making the simple play. Yeah. And I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, when you, when you talked about the age of our guys, I mean, Stevens in his recent, interview he he had a quote and this was the interview he had with jay king on the athletic right yeah yeah he's he says steven says if you look at it in in the totality of what these guys have done in their first five six years in the nba and he's speaking specifically to brown and tatum he said i think that there's a reason to just take a step back and just remember how unique and good they are and continue to try to find our best way as a group to help complement them and so there's this still this attitude of like, well, these guys are so young. They're only 23 and 25. I mean, we just played the Bulls, albeit they were a little shorthanded. Um, I watched the last couple of games of theirs before our game too um, because I just like the Bulls team. You know, and when you look at how they're built, Lonzo's 24, just like our guys, but Levine is 27. DeRozan and Vucevic are both 31. So those guys are making different types of drive and kicks. They're doing different types of offensive moves to try to get their own basket, and they're not always forcing it. Um, and so that there was a, a timeout that we took today, earlier today in the Pelicans game, where Tatum and Brown are sitting next to each other. Everyone's just kind of sitting on the bench waiting for the coach's huddle to be over so that Udoka can come back and give instructions. And there was just nobody talking. And I was like, Tatum's just kind of like sitting there, slumped over, like looking kind of off in the distance. And I had to like look closer at the screen to see like was Brown kind of whispering in his ear. He was right next to him. It was just there was no communication. They just looked gassed. And I think it's it's a testament to how difficult each of these shots is that they're trying to get. They're just they're just trying the harder way to do things, and and it's it, it almost is tiring them out even more. Um, but you know, like there are signs of life, so there's there's things to be excited about. Yeah, but and I think I mean. You know, this is, this is, you know, what you're saying now kind of brings, brings me back a little bit to some of the conversations you, me and Adam had, Josh, when we were discussing the merits of whether the the Celtics should have brought back uh, Evan Fournier. And, you know, I, I kind of kick myself a little bit that though the Celtics, who knows, they could still end up in the top four in the East, the way this, the, the conference is looking, but you know, when we ended last season, I was so down on this team and so frustrated. And I was like, like 23 year old, like teams whose best player is 23 don't compete for championships pretty much ever. And, and, you know, it was directed at kind of the, the understandable limitations in uh, Tatum's ability as a decision maker because of his youth and as a primary ball handler because of his youth. And and I think I've actually thought about the Bulls a number of times over the course of this season, because I think there's something in the DeRozan-Levine um, combination that that makes a lot of sense as, a, as an analog for um, Tatum and Jalen. 
You know, yeah. I don't think I don't think they're perfect comps, but certainly uh, both both players, as you pointed to, you know, DeRozan has seems like he's had like four different NBA lifetimes at this point, and he just kind of slowly and incrementally got better and better over the course of his career in Toronto. Um, but then he was always knocked for like not being able to to do perform in the playoffs. And then he went into like yeah. NBA Siberia uh, in San Antonio when they weren't, you know, making deep playoff runs um, and just kept steadily improving and improving as a playmaker and learning how to, how to be a primary ball handler and, and open up the offense. And, you know, I have to, this is an apology I owe you, Josh, because you were, you were right. I think it's pretty clear that DeRozan would be a, a better, well, I think the Celtics would be better if they added DeRozan than Hayward right now, but oh, I'm not, I'm still yeah. not sure. I'm still not sure that DeRozan would be a better teammate to add to Brown and Tatum for their development. What do you think? Of oh, that? I, th- I mean, I think he would have, I, I think he would be the perfect compliment to these guys. Cause he's that veteran presence that we lack right now. Yeah. But he, he also DeRozan was kind of over analyticized if that's, a term I could create. Right, right, because uh, because you know, everyone was getting down on threes. him for not shooting threes, right. Yeah. And and it's almost like people people kind of pushed him aside and and I, it wasn't just you who was sleeping on him, I, you know, like a lot of people were like, "What? That much money for him in the offseason?" And I was like, "This is the most underrated player in the NBA right now just based off of where everyone's placed him." They thought that, you know, it, they were acting like he was 34, 35 years old yeah. and washed up. And well, now for he's me, everybody wrong. For me, the bit the bigger concern. I, I I didn't doubt him as an offensive force and and uh, playmaker. Um, I I you know I still think he he does best with the ball predominantly in his hand. So I'm you know I'm not sure how ideal that is a fit next to Tatum and Brown if we want them to evolve into primary ball handlers. Um, I I also had major concerns about his defense, and he's just played better defense this year than he pretty much ever has. Um, but, but anyway, like what, you know, but he's an illustration of just how much players that have a demonstrated commitment to work, which I think both Tatum and Brown do can improve over time, but that time is necessary. Levine's another example, right? He was a freak athlete coming out of college, coming out of UCLA that didn't really understand the game, you know, suddenly yeah. eight, eight years later, He's an elite, highly efficient scoring offensive player. Um, he's like a decent uh, creator, but not particularly good. Uh, and then he went to the Olympics and became like our our top on-ball defender on the wing, which is something totally. no one ever would have guessed about him, right? So yeah, and knows um, how to play the team game now. And now, and yeah, and and had and part of his maturation was having years of losing and realizing like what, you know, he couldn't do it by himself. He needed to change. And so that's where, like what you were saying last week, Josh, about the silver lining of losing, I think is really on point. Like, I don't think neither Tatum or Brown, I think is going to be satisfied in being part of a 500 team. And that's great. And, you know, the rest of what Brad said, just to finish the thought uh, in, in that, that, uh, interview that and that excerpt from that interview is you know the next thing he said about them like we have to compliment them 
and they need to continue to improve. There's no doubt about that, but they've shown no reason for anyone not to think they will. So right. there's an awareness that these guys have growth um, that they need to achieve, but there's also a belief that they'll achieve that growth. So here's my question to you, because the update on the the theory from last week that the losing is actually a good thing, because if we continue to lose, not only will we get a top draft pick, but the losing will be too frustrating for these two guys. And that an off season after a losing season would be like a real reality check, a come to Jesus moment to look at yourself in the mirror, kind of an experience. And I'm afraid that, you know, these last games that we've been winning and that the more we play 500 ball, the less of an impact that, you know, like those guys have from actually losing. Like I want, losing season so those guys can get the reality like the real reality check instead of like always maybe teasing their own development and teasing themselves in that they can continue to think that well we're okay we're still winning a few of these or i'm still playing well like i don't know if the message will really uh sing. what do you think yeah i get i get what you're saying um i i i could see how what you're you're kind of theorizing could happen um, you know, I guess I, I hope that the way it, it, it trends, um, either is a bit more positive than fully middling though, uh, to your, the point of your earlier stat on the Celtics record since Hayward left, maybe, maybe that's, uh, overly optimistic that will be anything but middling, um, or, or, you know, it, it just takes a, a further dive to the South. You know, I think there's reason to believe that we'll get uh, in a better position over the remainder of January and into early February um, from a record wise. And, and I don't think, you know, I think that I don't think the team will feel a level of satisfaction. I don't think Jalen or Jason will feel a level of satisfaction if we're just a first round exit. So, um, but you're right. It, It might not be as stinging and as motivating if they, you know, manage to finagle their way into the first round and lose there, then if they just like get really embarrassed, have a sub 500 record and don't even make the playoffs or, or heaven, you know, heaven forbid, they don't even make the play in right. That, that would sting in a different way. So I definitely see what you're saying. I don't, I don't, that doesn't seem unreasonable to me. I, I'm just, I guess I'm hopeful that um, if this season ends in a way that's disappointing. And I think, I think a first round exit would still feel disappointing for the players. It can still spur the type of growth that's continued. uh, That's clearly needed to continue for these guys. Um, Any, any other kind of observations or thoughts on the, on this team turning the corner before we switch gears here, Josh? Yeah. The only other thing that I would say is that I think just based on the context of everything that we just talked about, it's really important to, maintain our draft picks and to continue to build through the draft. If we're a young team and we're not a contender right now, let's make sure that we're not trading our first round picks to try to get old players back that we love. Um, I'm okay with that with Horford. I would really but. worry about your your mental and perhaps physical health if we get to the other side of the trade deadline with without like a first round pick or God, God forbid, like two first two of our first round picks over the next three, three seasons. I just, I think we'll have to send in the, uh, 
you know, put put you on like <laughs> health watch. Yeah, the way the team is currently constructed, it's it's going to be difficult to improve the team, in my opinion, by trading Brown or Tatum or Rob Williams or Marcus Smart. I think if we need ball movers, Smart is a guy we want to hold on to. Um, I think that you know the defense and heart and soul of our team alone is is like reason enough. But uh, if that doesn't do it for you, like why give up a ball mover just to get another ball mover? Um, so to me. We have to continue to build through either trading some younger guys or the draft. And so I'm, I'm interested to see what happens at the trade deadline. Yeah. And that, I mean, that brings up uh, uh, the second kind of key question topic uh, we, we wanted to discuss here, Josh. Um, and, you know, I'll, before I, I dive into that fully, I wanted to just touch on, you know, you mentioned um, skepticism or questions about trading Tatum you know, the merits of trading Tatum or Brown or Smart or Robert Williams. And right, those are the four guys. And I think most Celtics fans ideal would be for the team to figure out how to get into championship contender level, keeping all four of those guys. Right? Mm-hmm. Like I and I think where like the painful questions come up is like, is that actually possible? And I think most of us are grappling with the fact that we we're not sure yet, but we're, we're, we're still hopeful. Um, one of the players that I think is, is really interesting um, to think about uh, as the trade deadline approaches is Dennis Schroeder. And he's interesting for a couple of reasons. One, he's, he's a good NBA player, despite how some people might feel about him. He has clear uh, um, above average NBA talents uh, as a scorer, as an isolation scorer. Um, just uh, athletically at the point guard position. Um, occasionally, he's an above average defender uh, <laughs> um, when he's not kind of getting lost in his own thoughts. Um, but but more, he's you know he's he's had a good shooting year this year uh, relative to his career and, and for him. Um, and he's he certainly just uh, got pretty elite quickness and speed and an ability to kind of just get into the teeth of the defense. Um, but we've signed him to a one-year, $5.9 million contract. Um, we don't have his bird rights, so we don't get to offer him anything at an advantage relative to any other uh, buyers out there on the free agent market after this season. Um, and there's a general expectation that he, he will be able to get a better offer um, than than what we would be able to offer him in the offseason. So... That all of those uh, factors together by themselves um, give some indication that maybe we should be looking to move him before the deadline. And lo and behold, there were some rumors that came out over the last week saying the Celtics were have been kicking the tires on some players, including uh, old friend Jeff Green, uh, who's currently with Denver. Um, I, I, I don't, I don't even think I've got the like emotional energy to talk about that. <laughs> uh, Jalen Smith on the Suns. Uh, that one's a little more interesting. Six ten, athletic, um, a good outside shooter. Uh, that one's complicated. We'll get into in a, in a moment. Um, but all of, and, and the, the rumor around, I think it was hoops hype had this, uh, the rumor around Jalen Smith with that the Celtics actually kind of made the overture 
like initiated the 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 interest um and and kind of the the core foundation for any trade would be built with Dennis Schroeder as as kind of the out, the the main outgoing piece from the Celtics. Yeah. Um so I wanted to to ask you two questions, Josh. The first is like does that deal as presented more or less um interest you basically Schroeder for Jalen Smith with, you know, maybe some bit parts around on one side or the other to, to make the teams feel like it's even. Um, and then the second question is, how do you feel about trading Dennis Schroeder generally? <laughs> um, I'm all for trading Dennis Schroeder. I am anti-Schroeder. I would like to trade him for a bag of peanuts right now. So if we can get Jalen Smith, that's great. Even though Jalen Smith has been uh, I don't think he's a candidate to get re-signed on his, or to get so his rookie deal extended. He no, um, so yeah. So what happened there is the Phoenix Suns have already declined his third-year uh, right. uh, option as a rookie, which is extremely uncommon and very strange. It was a very strange team-building decision. Um, well, it's not strange if you're not playing well. He hasn't well, really no, it's still well it's still strange. It. It's still strange because even in a case like this, it makes it less appealing to try to sign him because now the Celtics won't have any bird rights. Like they're going to be the Celtics are going right. to be restricted in what they can offer Jalen Smith, and he could get more as an unrestricted free agent from any other team. So right. it's only appealing to trade for Jalen Smith if you think you can keep his value sufficiently low that he won't get better than the 4.7 million a year uh, that he's currently making uh, on his next deal. So it's a bit, it's a bit of a weird trade target um, uh, for that reason. But, but I think as far as like this guy that could potentially fit alongside a big, like Robert Williams and could potentially pair nicely with, you know, kind of a tweener big like Grant Williams, uh, Jalen Smith, kind of checks the box on that front so so he's interesting from that perspective yeah Yeah, he's like mildly interesting like we think all of our young guys are to other teams like nobody really wants romeo or peyton pritchard no no you said you said that wrong because because we think all of our guys are the most interesting to other teams when the reality is they're at best mildly interesting (laughs) i don't even think they're mildly interesting to other people they haven't really done much like neesmith it's it's very similar to neesmith like Jalen Smith is a guy who hasn't really been able to get off the bench much in his career. He was drafted, I think, a lot higher than people expected and then I think was warranted. But he has some skills. He can shoot the three at 6'10", 6'11". He can block some shots a little bit. Um, he's somewhat mobile, but you know, I think he's only playing now because of all the health and safety protocols and the diminished roster that the Suns have had. Um, and he's finally you know, like getting the first minutes of his whole career. So now is the time when his trade value is the highest it's ever been, but it's how high is it? It's like not very high. Right. I think if you can get a, like a, you know, maybe getting some second round picks out of a deal like that is, is something that to, to kind of like sweeten the pot for us a little bit if we're giving up Schroeder. But I, I think, you know, Schroeder, obviously he's helped us a lot. He's great for this team to as like a bridge year into whatever's coming after this year from the point guard position, but in no way is he someone that we're going to be resigning because he's going to be too expensive or someone that I think uh, he's probably the biggest ball stopper, the biggest black hole that we have on the team. And so if we're looking for ball movement, which I am, 
I'm looking to get rid of him. Yeah, so I have a, almost all of the same gut feelings about Schroeder. Um, he's a ball stopper. You know, I referred I, I, I refer, referred to him being on the court generally as the Schroeder coaster um, yep. because it's just so up and down and, and can be, you know, he can, he can really light it up sometimes. And uh, that's very exciting when it happens. And then he can just be a total ball stopper. You know, who knows what decisions he's making when he does try to pass the ball um, or he just, you know, puts his head down and drives into three guys and, or stops playing defense. He, you know, falls down on offense and refuses to run back and get back on the defensive side of the ball. You know, he rolls the ball up the court uh, every time up for no particular reason, at least three quarters of those times. Um, You know, so there's a lot he does that's infuriating. There's a lot, there's there's stuff he does that's really impressive and really good. Uh, But I, you know, I was I wanted to look into this as to whether we should trade Schroeder. And I, I find Jalen Smith interesting. I, I think it's interesting. And Jeff Green, you know, kind of fits the same concept of like kind of a small ball five or, a, you know, that could also play four that theoretically brings kind of stretch, you know, can space the floor potential and with some defensive yeah. versatility. And I, and I have no problem with the Celtics pursuing that that position. I, we've known that's a position that's been a position of need. Uh, for reasons that will never be clear to me, the Celtics seem to think Jabari Parker might be able to grow into that position. That was ludicrous. Um, but, you know, got J- Jeff Green actually has kind of made like uh, a, a twilight, a, a really impressive twilight phase of his career in that type of role, though he's having kind of a down season with Denver this year. Uh, Jalen Smith has some potential to grow into that role, but he has a weirdness with his contract that makes him um not ideal so i like what you said about like getting a couple second rounds to sweeten it if we're going to give up schroeder who who does who should have some value in the market not crazy value we're not going to get anything amazing back for him uh but he is a positive player and and i wanted to look at just how positive he's been for the celtics so since the beginning of december he has the best net rating on the team which is a a a plus 5.3 at least among regulars people playing more than 20 minutes a game um, over that period of time when he's been on the court, we have a, a 112.7 offensive rating over the full season. Our offensive rating is, uh, uh worse than that. We're, you know, we're a below average offense. 112.7 would at least be like in the top 10 type of offense. Um, uh, Tatum for reference is the best on the team in that stretch, uh, with a 112.8 offensive rating. So 0.1 better. So, that's just as, like we're almost as good with Schroeder on the floor offensively as we are with Tatum, and we're bet we've been better overall um, since the beginning of December. Uh, in the last ten games, Schroeder's been even better. He has a he's had a sixty point one true shooting, um, so he's being highly efficient. You know, from three, getting to the line, from the mid range, uh, getting getting to the rim. He has a 11.9 net rating. So he's been a big part of our success in these recent games. Um, and, and the thing that I think is most relevant is without, you know, in these last few games when Smart's been out, <clears throat> what we've seen is um, Schroeder being put increasingly in lineups that make more sense. Uh, there, for 
when when both Schroeder and Smart uh, were healthy, um, for whatever reason, they would often both be in the same lineup with two bigs at the same time. And those were extraordinarily inefficient lineups. Uh, now we're seeing more of him playing with the Jays and with Rob and Al. Uh, those lineups are, I think, more effective as well as some of the, the rotations that are happening with the bench. So uh, taken together, um, I think at minimum it needs to be acknowledged that if we trade Schroeder, I think it's pretty. It's more likely than not we're going to be worse for the remainder of the season than get better. What do you think of that, Josh? Yeah, I'm actually not too opposed to being a little bit worse this year in order to get better in the future. I'm also curious to see what we might do with the trade exceptions that we have. I think we still have one from the the Fournier situation that's 11 million, or from the Gordon Hayward situation. So, you know, we have the five million for Schroeder, but we've got a little bit of a higher price tag on on those trade on one at least one of those trade exceptions. Um, and the idea of Jeff Green, I, I actually like. Of all of those situations that you just suggested, Jeff Green is is finally somebody who you know is going to be consistent. You know, for his whole career, he was the guy with all this potential that everyone thought could be like James Worthy or could be like all these great players, and he never really put it together. He's actually looking really bouncy and, and really spry this year. Um, he had a game, I think his last game, he had like six dunks or five dunks in the game. Um, so he's just, he's been balling out, but, uh, you know, Denver may not have any desire to keep him because they're also a 500 team. So, you know, I think that, that someone like that in our locker room though, would be good who can still perform on the court and can be another veteran mentor for the young guys, uh, especially to encourage more ball movement. But, um, I'm just curious to see how this trade deadline approaches yeah we'll we'll see and you know we have uh 11 games between now and the trade deadline josh um as i as i mentioned before um it, it's not the hardest slate so six of the 11 games are against teams below 500 uh that includes you know like we've got we've got orlando in there we've got detroit in there uh we've got sacramento portland without dame lillard Etc. And then even against some of the the above 500 teams, you know, we've got Washington, who's barely above 500, just like us. We've got two games against Charlotte. Those are actually quite important games for us. Uh, and we've got a game against Brooklyn without uh, a healthy KD. So, you know, this is a slate of 11 games where that are going to be really important uh, for the trajectory of this season. They're going to give additional data on on whether kind of some of these signs of progress are for real and whether the team has turned something of a corner here um, and can put together a streak, it's going to be, you know, indicative of, of whether we're going to make a move, what type of move we're going to make. Um, and then uh, we'll, we'll kind of see where we are for the home stretch of the season. Um, so it should be an interesting, it should be an interesting uh, run of games here. And, and hopefully the Celtics can actually pull together um, you know, something like one of those five or six game win streaks, Josh, that you were alluding to earlier. Yeah, this is the opportunity for us right here in the schedule. We'll see if it happens. So that's it, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you if you've made it this far, you are part of Celtics Pride. <laughs>